Well, good morning to you in person. Good morning to you online. Uh, so excited about starting this new sermon series from the book of Hosea. That line you just heard from the hymn Amazing Grace is, is one of my favorites. "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace welcomes all the prodigal sons and daughters back to the Father's table." And so this morning, as we begin this four-week series from the Old Testament book of Hosea, I want us to see how God's grace reaches out to all of us broken and sinful people and how God's grace relentlessly leads us back home, back to the Father's table. It was about a year ago, uh, last fall, I began this sort of personal study of the book of Hosea. And why Hosea, in, in some ways, the honest answer is only God knows why Hosea. But, but there were some things that, that stood out to me for sure. One is, I just, I fell in love with the structure of the book. You know, so many of the uh, Old Testament uh, prophets are a series of sermons, a series of lectures, and those are, those are very powerful. But, but Hosea is one of those unique books that's, that's both lecture and lab. Uh, it's not only the, the, the truth of the textbook, so to speak, but it's also the practice in the lab, you know, with the, the, the Bunsen burners and the test tubes and the beakers. Well, well Hosea takes us uh, into the laboratory of God's grace. He helps us see uh, what it's really like to, to love a sinful person. Uh, and so I was really struck by uh, that, that beautiful structure. But I think the, the deeper reason why I was drawn to Hosea's is really a personal one. For, for quite a few years now, I have been on a personal theological treasure hunt, if you will. And that is, I have been trying to learn and learn and learn and experience and experience and experience more of God's grace. I am just endlessly fascinated by grace, the, the gracious love of God for sinful people like you and me. And if Hosea does anything, it takes us into the heart of God. It takes us into that deep and brokenhearted and gracious love of God for you and me. And so with that in mind, I want us to kind of crack open Hosea this morning. I want us to look at Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. And we're going to begin in the laboratory today. Uh, we're going to begin in the laboratory of life with all of its brokenness and pain. So listen as I read Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. 
Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. May God bless the reading of his word. My plan for the sermon today is to talk about three families. Three dysfunctional families. We're going to start out with a historical family uh, in the 700s B.C., the family of a man named Hosea. And then this historical family is going to help us understand God's dysfunctional family, uh, what you might call the family of Israel and by extension the church. And then fair warning, before we end, my goal is to get uncomfortably personal with you and me and talk about our dysfunctional families. But we'll begin with Hosea, okay? Uh, We'll start with Hosea's family. Um, As I was preparing uh, this series, I had a picture in my mind, a funny picture, of a bunch of Old Testament prophets drinking coffee at a Waffle House. And uh, they were sharing stories with one another about how God called them to be prophets. And I imagined uh, Jeremiah going first, and he was saying, you know, I was so young (laughs) when God called me, and I didn't want to do it. I wanted to play baseball, uh, but God called me. And then Daniel says, well, I had just been deported uh, as a captive to Babylon, so I was pretty much up for anything uh, when God called me. And then Amos says, you know what, I, fellas, I'm not really a prophet. I, I'm not even the son of a prophet. I don't know why, but God told me to speak, and I, and I did. And then the conversation turns to Hosea. And as I imagine it, there's a grand pause, and Hosea takes another gulp of coffee. And then he looks around the table, and he says, boys, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you story. Hosea's story begins not so much with a call to prophesy as with a call to start a family. That's what we read in that shocking verse, right? Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the very beginning, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land, this People is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. This idea of of, uh, marital promiscuity and spiritual unfaithfulness, it's the same word, it's the same theme. Okay, a little bit of background. Why in the world, why in the world would God ask Hosea to do something like that? A little bit of background. Uh, Hosea is born during a, a, a theologically dark time, a spiritually dark time in the nation of Israel. Um, If you think of Israel as as 12 tribes uh, through the pride and immaturity of leaders in the north and in the south, uh, there's been a a split in the kingdom. Uh, The north has seceded from the south, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The north sometimes called Israel, sometimes called the north, sometimes called Ephraim. The south uh, often called Judah. And uh, things were really bad in the north. They were not much better in the south, only slightly better in the south. And uh, Hosea is born around 700 years before Jesus is born. 
and things in the north are so spiritually messed up. And Hosea's prophecy actually precedes the fall of Israel in a place called the Valley of Jezreel. But his initial work, as we said, uh, during this kind of dark time, his initial work when God began, uh, kind of verse 2 has a Genesis kind of feel to it, when God began to work in Hosea's life, the initial work was actually to, to, to give a marriage proposal to a promiscuous woman named Gomer. They get married, and God gives them a son. God tells Hosea to name the boy Jezreel which was a symbolic name for that valley where, where, that had witnessed so many battles in Israel's history, ultimately, as I said, the place where Israel would fall. And if the story hasn't shocked you enough so far, get ready, because it's not like marriage reforms Gomer's character. The implication of the text is that while uh, Hosea is the father of Jezreel, he would not pass a, a paternity test on the next two children that Gomer gives birth to. And by the way, and we'll say this throughout this series, the series, the culture of marriage uh, and the actual marriage that we see in the book of Hosea is a far cry uh, from the ideals of Christian marriage that we would teach today. Uh, but just kind of throwing that out there. But, uh, but when Gomer gets pregnant a second time, uh, she has a daughter, and shockingly, the Lord says, name her Lo Ruhama, which means not pitied or un. Love The ruhama in Hebrew is, is uh, a word for the womb. And so lo, not ruhama, is, is outside of the womb and the compassion of God's love. I agree with those who say that this name is a, is, is a prophecy for Israel. Israel has kind of placed herself outside of the womb of God's care. With two children at home, Gomer gets pregnant again. Another son, and God says, name him Lo-Ami, a phrase which means not my people. In fact, verse 9, then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. The commentator says this is a devastating word of judgment. Israel has effectively sold herself. She belonged to God, but she now has sold herself to other God's, she, she switched her allegiance. Now by the time we finish the bare bones of this historical family, right, we're shaking our heads, aren't we? I mean, what is going on here? What's going on in Hosea's family? Now once again, uh, if you were gonna write a book on Christian marriage and Christian parenting, you wouldn't wanna lift up this family as the example. You wouldn't wanna build a book around, around this family. But to understand what's going on in this first family, Hosea's family, we have to see it in the context of a larger and more important story of a family. And that second family, you might call God's family. God's family. Because you may have noticed there's a lot of commentary in between uh, the story of Hosea's family in chapter 1. And it's, it's commentary about this larger backdrop of Israel. And by the way, kind of why we're on the subject of Hosea and Gomer, I, I want to share with you that I do not believe in any stretch that God is advocating uh, missionary dating in Hosea chapter 1. Do you know that term, missionary dating? A follower of God falls in love with someone who doesn't follow God, and he or she thinks that if they get married, God will use the faith of the believer to convert the unfaith of the non-believer. Now, God can do anything. I mean, God is sovereign. God is almighty. 
But I will tell you from long pastoral experience that I've seen a, a different outcome played out over and over again uh, when that happens. So I, I don't think, and I don't say that to shame anybody, by the way, uh, nor to, to say that God can't do anything. God, God can. Uh, but I don't think that God is advocating missionary dating. No, I think God asked Hosea to do this so that Hosea might be in a position to proclaim powerful truths from the heart of God to our hearts. The, the great 20th century British preacher G. Campbell Morgan says, he put it this way, he says, God interprets himself through our experiences. Let me say it again. God interprets himself to us through our own experiences. God needed Hosea, in other words, to know heartbreak in order to communicate God's heartbreak and love. I've heard people say before, you know what, I understood God's grace a lot more after I failed than I did before. I've heard people say they understood God's stubborn love much more after someone had sinned against them than before. I've heard people say their understanding of God dramatically shifted after they had children. There was a new dimension of God's love after they became parents. I wonder, parents, have you ever had this experience? Um, you're, you're trying to maybe keep a, a, a toddler from harm. Uh, maybe they're playing too close to a, to a busy street. And so you go to, you ask them to come and they don't come and then you go to like physically uh, move them. Uh, but that very tired three-year-old deeply resents your intrusion into their personal autonomy. And, uh, and while you pick up uh, that three-year-old and while you are kind of moving that three-year-old towards safety, they get very, very frustrated with you. And the only way they know to express their frustration is by punching and kicking you at the same time. Now, parents, what do you do in that situation? Do you say, fine, be that way and put them down? Do you say, well, I guess I must respect your autonomy? No, you make them miserable and you miserable, don't you? You, you endure the kicks, you endure the blows. You, you do whatever you have to do to, to ultimately care for your child. I almost get the sense that, that that's just what is going on in Israel. Israel is going to experience the unhappy discipline of God, and God is in experiencing the unhappy sinfulness of Israel. And what Hosea is trying to say to us is this is just a tiny fraction. What, what Hosea is saying is what I'm experiencing in my marriage is just a tiny fraction of what God experiences with Israel. Hosea can now effectively preach from a broken heart. You see, God wants Hosea and us to know that our idolatry, right, our flirtations with the gods of, of comfort or money or power or ambition or sex, whatever it is, God wants us to know that that feels just like Gomer's promiscuity felt to Hosea. So verse 2 says, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. God's saying, you have been unfaithful to me and your actions have consequences. Now, some of these consequences are spelled out in chapter one. A proud and violent people, Israel, will meet with violence 
in the valley of Jezreel. A nation that relied on its strength, that relied on the bow, will have that bow broken in that same valley. God wants us to know that there are consequences for our sins. But God wants us to know something else. And that is that God does not write us off. As long as we draw breath, there is an opportunity to return to God. I mean, look at verse 10. After all these kids and all these gloomy names, verse 10 says, yet, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. That's astounding. What's God saying? He's saying, I'm gonna change the name of the third son. Lo, Ami, not my people, is now going to be called child of the living God because our God is ultimately a God of grace. After we've disowned God, after we've followed other gods, after we've forsaken our heavenly father, our father renews his commitment to us. After we have taken ourselves out of his family, and disowned him. He takes us to the courthouse and changes our name back to a gracious name, children of the living God. It almost seems like God had to break Hosea's heart so that Hosea could preach God's heart, so that we could hear God's anguish over our sin and treachery, and so that we could hear God's shocking grace amid our dysfunction. I once read Barbara Brown Taylor describe this picture in such a powerful way. She pictured Israel as the faithless wife and Yahweh as the always faithful husband. She said, Israel always comes home again once she's been reminded that the grass on the other side is never as green as it looks. And she said, Yahweh would hear the screen door slam and that he would smell Israel before he saw her. And that she smelled of cigarettes and stale beer. And she would come into the room and lean against a door with a cut on her upper lip and a fading bruise on her arm. And Yahweh would gently take her by the hand and draw her bath. That's a picture, isn't it? Of the Savior's love for us in all of our unfaithfulness, in all of our betrayal, the message of Romans 5.10 is that Jesus chose to die for us while we were his enemies. Christ washed 24 feet the night before he died on the cross for us. and Two of them belonged to Judas Iscariot. He washed the feet of those who would deny him Betray him, abandon him. While we're faithless, he's faithful. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't break his promise to us when we break our promise to him. We talked about Hosea's family. We talked about God's family. Why don't we end by getting uncomfortably personal and talking about your family, my family. You know, every family, every extended family 
in one way or another is a dysfunctional family. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. This is just my rough paraphrase of Romans 3.23, the, the New Living Translations, uh, Romans 3.23, for everyone is sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That means everybody, right? If we believe Romans 3.23, then everybody in the four walls of a house falls short of God's glorious standard. That to me is a definition of a dysfunctional family. Put a bunch of sinners together and have them do life together, right? Every family, to one degree or another, lesser or greater, participates in dysfunction. Now sometimes in seasons of our life, where I said greater to lesser, sometimes we find ourselves on the greater side of the ledger, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you find yourself there today. Like Gomer, you really have let people down. Maybe you're overwhelmed with guilt. Or maybe on the lesser side, maybe like Hosea, you're, you're struggling with the betrayal of someone that you trusted deeply. And so I think we need to ask the question, what might this passage say to us today in the midst of our dysfunctional families? I think the very first thing I, I want to say is that before we focus on the brokenness of others, we need to find ourselves in God's story. Isn't it interesting how Adam and Eve point fingers at, 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 at one another? You know, it's, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault. But, but we need to kind of say, Lord, I stand before you a sinner. I, I am transparent about my sin before you and I am pleading for your grace and forgiveness. And then after we've done that, then we can say, Lord, and would you pour enough grace into me that there would be enough grace to splash out onto others who've harmed me? Here's a truth of life. Our love will run out of fuel unless we stay connected to the grace of God. We need God continually pouring grace to us so that we have grace to share with others. If not, we will give in to self-righteousness, we will give in to bitterness, we will write people off, we will call people low ami, you are not my people, I know. I don't care what you know, 23andMe says, you are not my people, I am writing you off. We need that grace to say, no, you and I, we're children of the living God and we're family. So the first thing I think is we stand before God and we ask for that grace. There's a second thing though that I think is really important and that is we ask God's help to play the long game with people in our lives. To not react to the moment but to have that same kind of long gracious, stubborn commitment to others that God has with us. Let's just say, for example, uh, that someone has hurt you, broken a promise to you, betrayed you. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's not wise to draw some boundaries from time to time. We have to do that from time to time. I'm certainly not saying any one of us should ever sign up for abuse. Abuse doesn't help anybody, the abused or the abuser. But, but I wonder... I wonder if Hosea, if he were here today, I wonder if he might not testify to the power of playing the long game. Because that's what God does with us. God is so patient in his grace. God is so patient in his forgiveness. Theologians uh, have a, a word that I think is a beautiful term. And uh, I wanna share this with you 
today. You can impress your friends uh, with this theological term. The word is imputation. Imputation or to impute. It means to apply credit to someone else's account. It isn't originally an an accounting uh, term. Uh, Imputation in, in its purest sense is what Jesus does for us. Jesus looked at all my sin, you know, we, we pray forgive us our debts. Jesus looks at all my indebtedness. Jesus looks at that, that red column of all the debts that I owe. And Jesus says, I'm going to take my grace, my merit, my treasure, and I'm going to pour it into Larry's account. And where he was in the red, now he'll be in the black. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, no debt, to be sin for us, to take our indebtedness so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happens? Jesus gets poor, we get rich with grace. Debtors become millionaires overnight. We deserve to be called low, ruhami, unloved. But Jesus says, I love you and I am imputing my love and grace. Now friends, this is not just some abstract theological lesson because I believe God also calls on us to impute love to others. A theologian friend of mine named Paul Zoll puts it this way. He says, grace sees the image of God in sinful people. And so when people hurt us, we look for God's image in them. He says that that grace is God's one-way love for others. Not I'll love you if you'll love me back and forth, but one-way love. That's imputation. One-way love for others. We front people the currency of grace they don't deserve. And we do it in a tiny way because God has done it to us in a massive way. God has flooded our account with grace. We are flush with grace. God's grace falls out of our pockets like $100 bills every day. He's given us so much grace. And we share that undeserved grace with others. I was uh, practicing the sermon with some staff friends on Monday, and at the end, I didn't feel great about it, and I said, well, you know, what? And, and they said, ah, you know, Larry, could, do you have a personal story uh, you could share maybe of how you experienced imputation? I thought that was a good idea. That was on Monday, and so Tuesday, uh, I kind of did a little work on this story that some of you have heard me share before, but maybe not the whole story. Uh, it was a story of my first sermon. Thankfully, there are no uh, podcasts of that uh, in the internet. But uh, uh, I'd just come back. I, w- I was 19. Um, uh, it was the summer after my senior year in high school. I'd just come back from Glorieta, New Mexico. And I had, had gone down to the front and I had said, I feel like God is calling me to surrender to ministry. That's what we call it. I feel like God is calling me to give my life to vocational ministry. And people prayed for me and celebrated me. And when I came back, uh, I told my, my pastor. And my pastor says, that's great news. I want you to preach for me next Sunday night. I was 19. I had no idea what I was doing. Now, our pastor, he was a really good preacher. He had actually played basketball at Howard Payne. He was tall. He was lanky. I think he wore suspenders, if I'm not mistaken. And every time he got up to preach, he would kind of adjust his pants like that, you know. So here I am, 19 years old, 
I walk up to the pulpit. You see where this is going, don't you? And the first thing I do is I say, I guess I ought to adjust my pants, shouldn't I? That's a good idea, right? Just right off the bat, make fun of the pastor who's just invited you to preach. Then I preached a sermon that, as I remember it, was on the narrow subject of God, sin, heaven, and hell. I don't think I had a biblical text. And the sermon was over in, in 10 minutes. That sermon was, frankly, terrible. But here's the deal. Afterwards, people came up to me and they imputed me. They came up to me and they shared God's grace with me. They encouraged me. It was almost as if my name accurately, technically, was not a preacher. <laughs> and they renamed me to future preacher of God's grace. So Monday, my friend said, share a personal story. Tuesday, I remembered this story. I'd also remembered, it seems like that pastor gave me a book. Ah, oh, I wish I still had it. That was on Tuesday. On Thursday, I come into my office and there's a stack of three old books that my assistant Teresa had put on my desk. She said, I'm clearing some things out. These look kind of abandoned. Do you still want these? And, uh, and one of those books was Abingdon's strong, exhaustive concordance of the Bible. Uh, when I felt called to ministry, there were no personal computers. And so if you wanted to see how many times the, the word side chamber was used in the Old Testament, well, you had to have one of these books. It was given to me by the pastor that had asked me to preach. And I kind of vaguely remembered this book and the inscription. And it was on my, <laughs> I hadn't seen this book in years, and it was on my desk Thursday morning. To Larry, in memory of September 21st, 1980, a day I will long remember too. On that day, I heard one of the future great servants of the Lord. May God bless you, brother. Logan Cummings. <laughs> Now, preachers in and now exaggerate. It's part of the calling. It's part of what we do, right, uh, to exaggerate. But he gave me a gift that I didn't deserve. He saw me through grace spectacles. One of the things we'll see over and over in the book of Hosea is that God gives us a grace we don't deserve. He calls us by gracious names we don't deserve. Maybe God is calling you to do that right now with someone in your family, extended family, friend group, to look at the image of God that they're created in and to change their secret name that you've been calling them in your heart to deeply loved, to my brother, to my sister, not because they deserve it, but neither do we, Right? but because Jesus Christ turns debtors into millionaires. Jesus Christ fills our pockets with grace so that we can share it freely. We thought there would be no better way for us to uh, celebrate the heart of chapter one than for us to observe the Lord's Supper today and I'll invite Amy to come and to lead us as we celebrate God's amazing grace.